Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 12 on Repentance. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Jacob Dandy. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. Pastor Dandy, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely, and a pleasure to have you on today and to discuss repentance, which right along with justification, that Article 4, that chief doctrine there, is really at the heart of the Reformation. And so this is a really important article to get into. And we're going to start out, as we always do, with just reading the article in its entirety. And as we do this, a reminder on the show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 12 from the Augsburg Confession on Repentance. Our churches teach that there is forgiveness of sins for those who have fallen after baptism whenever they are converted. The church ought to impart absolution to those who return to repentance. And they cite Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Now, strictly speaking, repentance consists of two parts. One part is contrition, that is, terror striking the conscience through the knowledge of sin. The other part is faith, which is born of the gospel. They cite Romans 10, verse 17 or the absolution, and believes that for Christ's sake, sins are forgiven. It comforts the conscience and delivers it from terror. Then good works are bound to follow, which are the fruit of repentance, as it talks about in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who deny that those who have once been justified can lose the Holy Spirit. They also condemn those who argue that some may reach such a state of perfection in this life that they cannot sin. The Novatians also are condemned, who would not absolve those who had fallen after baptism, though they returned in repentance. Our churches also reject those who do not teach that forgiveness of sins comes through faith, but command us to merit grace through satisfactions of our own. They also reject those who teach that it is necessary to perform works of satisfaction, commanded by church law, in order to remit eternal punishment or the punishment of purgatory. All right, and that is the entirety of Article 12 from the Augsburg Confession on Repentance. All right, Pastor Dandy, as I set us up there, I said that this is at the heart of the Reformation, of course. Uh, go ahead and get us, how did we get to here in the Augsburg Confession? Yeah, so you said right, it's really one of those things that links very closely with justification, as the Reformation really wants to 
proclaim the justification by faith alone in Christ Jesus that we learn about in the book of Romans. We learn that the righteous or the just shall live by faith, right? And that as we look to Christ in faith, we are justified and we are forgiven. Now, accompanying with that then, that we have the forgiveness of sins, we are made righteous before God, there was then this reality that existed in the Roman church prior to the Reformation where you didn't have uh, what we would call confession and absolution or confession and forgiveness, where you go to your pastor uh, as a baptized Christian, confess your sins, say, Pastor, I have sinned in this way. I desire the Lord's forgiveness. And then the pastor says, hey, I forgive you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And that's the kind of order that we have today, and we, we have that corporately in our worship services. You can take advantage of that privately with your pastor or your pastor's brother confessors and all these other things. But in the Roman church prior to the Reformation, it wasn't confession and absolution, but it was confession, absolution, and then satisfaction, right? And so there was this idea of penance that you would have to perform to make satisfaction for your sin, right? And that's really a lot of the content that Martin Luther is trying to tackle in 1517 when he writes the 95 Theses, right? The second of the 95 Theses says, this word repentance cannot be understood as referring to a sacrament of penance, that is confession and then satisfaction administered by the clergy. You know, we don't demand satisfaction done by the penitent to cover their sins. And the reason we don't do that is because our doctrine of justification says Christ died for sinners once and for all, right? That Jesus gives forgiveness of sins in his death, and we live and subjectively receive that forgiveness of sins by faith alone. And so here we have in the 12th article of the Augsburg Confession, the Reformers wrestling against and seeking to correct that error among a few others within the church. And so we have that idea of confession, absolution, satisfaction. And the Reformers think, no, this the satisfaction thing doesn't seem right because our forgiveness comes from Christ alone, through faith alone. We trust in the gospel, and that's where we get the forgiveness of not through our satisfaction. We don't make atonement for our own sin. Christ does that for us. Yeah, so it seems then that really what we have is a difference of definition of what repentance consists of, right? Yeah. And basically the difference is, is that they add those satisfactions to the end. And, and you saw that as we were reading through here, that that's very much at the forefront. Uh, as we get to that, maybe we ought to start then. We say that our definition, that Repentance consists of two parts, they say. And so uh, go ahead and give us our definition and our foundation, kind of as we seek to do on this particular series going through the Augsburg Confession, kind of this Bible study approach to how do we talk about repentance as Lutheran Christians? In? Yeah, and so we confess that confession has two parts. First, that we confess that we are sinners who have sinned, right? And so the word here used in the confessions is contrition, right? And I like how they define contrition here. It's that the terrors strike the conscience through the knowledge of sin. And so we think of that in terms of maybe law and gospel, that the law 
serves as a mirror, right? It reveals our sin. And when that sin reveals is revealed to us, it reveals to us a need because our sin actually comes with consequences. The wrath of God, the displeasure of uh, offending the God who has created us. And we have terror over our conscience, over our sins, that we actually have an inward pain within our hearts saying, oh no, look what I have done. Look how I have done something wrong. This is contrary to the Lord. This is contrary to his will. I have failed, right? And then that contrition is always accompanied by faith, right? And our faith is not some just subjective out there faith, but that faith is always focused specifically in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus died for this sin. Jesus has atoned for me as a sinner. Christ has removed this sin away from me, right? And so I have sinned. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. That's contrition. And then part B would be that Jesus has died and risen to daily remove my sin. So forgiveness comes to me through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that all then works together as repentance is actually something that is worked in us by the Holy Spirit of God. That means that that is going to bear fruit of the Spirit. It's going to bear fruit in love toward my God, love toward my neighbor. And maybe if we were just to summarize it, repentance really is just baptism, your Christian faith lived out in your life, right? You know, when we think about the small catechism, what does Martin Luther say when he talks about baptism? Well, he says, what does baptizing indicate, right? Well, it indicates that the old Adam in us, through daily contrition and repentance, is daily drowned and dies, and that a new man emerges in Christ, right? That we are new creations, and that's kind of Romans 6, applied to who we are and how we live according to the means of grace and the Spirit of God. And so repentance has sorrow over sin and faith in Jesus, and that's really just the baptized Christian living in this world, and that's a cool idea there. And so repentance is that continual life lived out in our baptism. Yeah, I love that connection to baptism and the small catechism there. And as you were talking, of course, we just had Article 11 on confession. And in the small catechism under confession, Martin Luther so wonderfully talks about how confession consists of two parts. And it's not quite the same two parts of repentance here, although certainly that would be behind it as well, that we confess our sins. And so there's that contrition, you know, that's what's going to lead us to confession. And then that we receive absolution, which is received by faith. And so do you make any connection here in kind of the progression of thought in the Augsburg Confession between confession and repentance then as well as confession is kind of living the baptized life out there? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's no mistake that in how Luther organizes the catechism that he talks about baptism. And, you know, and I think sometimes in the way that we think about things, we think about baptism and then we think entirely of how we make things to maybe being just the two sacraments here. And we think, okay, the next logical step after baptism is get confirmed and go to the Lord's Supper, right? But really what we see here is that Luther really organizes this to say, well, what's going to follow baptism? 
well, the life of repentance. And what does God give us as a gift as we live in our life of repentance? Well, he does give us the Lord's Supper, and we, we should cling to that and make use of that as much as we can. He gives us his holy word, but then he also gives us the confession and absolution, right? And so we see, you know, what do we have? We have baptism, and then right after that, in catechism, confession and absolution, that we are living a life under the means of grace. And so to live a life of repentance really is to live a life where you're constantly fleeing out from your sinful flesh, fleeing away from your old Adam and a sinful world to God's gift for us in the gospel of Christ dying for sinners in the means of grace, right? And that's where the cross is given to you. It is applied to you. It is applied to a guilty or terrified or stricken conscience. And we are blessed in that. But not only that, we have the word in there as well. And really, the word is really the means in which God calls us to repentance and faith, right? He calls us to be contrite and sorrowful over our sins. God uses his word a lot like how Nathan the prophet speaks to David in First Samuel chapter 12. He uses his word and says, hey, you are the man. You have done this. And it's okay when God's word actually terrifies and strikes our conscience, so long as we don't remain terrified, but we go talk to our pastor, or we go to church and go to the Lord's Supper, or we remember our baptism, or we recount the gospel and remember God forgives sinners. And that's all rooted 100% in the root of Christ himself and the work of Jesus. Well said. And then... As we continue on here in our progression in this Article 12 of the Augsburg Confession, the next thing we see is that this faith is going to bear fruit, right? That good works are bound to follow as they're the fruit of repentance, and they cite Galatians 5 there. And, of course, we've already had the article on good works here in the Augsburg Confession as well. And we talked about there, uh, and I think we see it playing out here in repentance, that all of this order is really important, right? I mean, you just made it very clear for us that the order is important there in understanding repentance, and then, you know, it's going to bear this fruit. So go ahead and get us into that. How does this repentance lead to bearing the fruit? And then how does this bearing the fruit connect with the uh, satisfactions at all? Yeah, so... As we think about that, right, um, maybe we even think about the life of repentance in terms of Ephesians chapter 2, which should be very familiar to us in our Lutheran context. Verses 8, 9, and 10 are really repeated, especially around Reformation time, right? But when we get to like chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And so as we think about that, we think about being dead in trespasses and sin, right? And so at one point, all of us who have ever been born, at one point or another, all of us before or prior to our baptism, were bound to our old sinful flesh and bound to our old sinful atoms, right? You think about that in terms of maybe John chapter 3, where Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And as we think about that reality at life in us, right? So what is that person who is born of the flesh bound to do but the things of the flesh? And all of that they do, all that they live in is going to be of the flesh, right? Because they don't have the gospel. But if you do have the gospel, it's because you are of the spirit. You have been baptized in the Christ. And that means that the spirit of God is at work and alive in you, right? So that you are not bound to the passions of your flesh to carry out the desires of the body and the mind, but you are now bound by the spirit of God and that your life flows from the spirit of God, right? And so it's one of those things where I can go and sit in my backyard and watch the birds do the same thing every day because that's what they are. They're birds. Right. I can watch the bees buzz around my flowers and around the blossoms on my trees right now because, hey, that's what bees do. They buzz around blossoms. They eat the pollen. They do what they do. And it's the same thing of those who are born of the spirit of God. It's going to naturally result that those who have faith in Christ have the spirit of God and will bear fruit in the spirit of God. Now, the issue comes here, and this is the thing that maybe is the crux between our Lutheran confession and maybe what was going on in the times of the Reformation is that those fruits of the Spirit aren't compulsory, but they're natural. The fruits of the Spirit of God are things that are produced by the gospel and the Spirit being alive with us, right? And so um, I live out here in California, and we're in a, a nice rural area, and of course, there's lots of agriculture around us, and we have orange trees and peach trees, and we have all different types of nuts. We're the land of fruits and nuts out here, I guess. But as we look around, I don't see the orange trees having to be compelled to produce oranges, because that's what they do, right? And it's the same thing for those who are living in repentance, who have the gospel of Christ and cling to Jesus. Well, you are born of the Spirit, and so your life will bear fruit in the Spirit. Faith in Christ does bear fruit. Now, when you think about that in terms of the Reformation, in terms of that confession, absolution, and then satisfaction or penance for sin, what are they doing? They're making what should be natural by those who rejoice in the gift of the gospel be compulsory, right? And a lot of times aimlessly compulsory to the extent where it takes a person's eyes and hope off of Jesus dying and rising for sinners and puts their eyes and their hope on the satisfactions that they're making for their sin. 
right? And that's the big, that's really, you know, the crux of why Luther was so alarmed over the sale of indulgences, for example, or the veneration of relics and the worship of relics and the satisfactions demanded to sin during the time of the Reformation. Because what does it do? It takes our hope and our sight off of Christ. It takes our vision and our comfort and our joy away from the one who provides it. Namely, it's Jesus who dies for us alone. It's it's Christ who does the work. Now, you know, of course, the Roman Catholics, they responded to this. When Melanchthon and the Reformers all wrote, hey, yeah, um, repentance has two parts, contrition and faith, they said, well, hold on here. Right. And their computation, they say, well, hey, you are giving an insult to the entire church and all of its history if you exclude satisfaction, pontifical satisfaction for sin. So they say, no, you have to include satisfaction or you're going to create a bunch of licentious and wicked people. Right. And here, I'll read actually the last line from the computation where you'll probably be able to pick out the big issue here. Right. It says Christ thus made satisfaction for us. Right. Talking about how Christ died for the sins of the world, that we might be zealous of good works. I agree with that. Christ made satisfaction that we might be zealous of good works. Two statements I can get on board with fulfilling the satisfaction enjoying. And so they say Christ made satisfaction for us that we might be zealous for good works. And then those good works fulfill his satisfaction. So they're basically saying here that our good work completes the work that Christ has done, that somehow Christ's work isn't enough. And so we can compare that line with something like Hebrews 10, where it says Christ died for sinners once and for all, that Christ's death for sinners is the ultimate, complete, and final satisfaction for all sins. That Christ dying for sinners completes it every bit. And all we must do then is look to Christ in faith because that's how we are saved. That's how we have forgiveness. That's how we are justified. We look to Christ alone. We have justification from him by faith alone. And that is because he objectively died for all the sins of the world. Yeah, I like how you highlighted there that this is really at the crux of the Lutheran position on repentance because, you know, that's the thing that's often thrown at us is that, uh, you know, we don't encourage good works and all of those sorts of things. And that's not the case at all. As you highlighted and stated so well for us, it follows faith. And if we do anything else where we make it compulsory, then essentially what it boils down to, as you stated so clearly, is it says that what Christ did is insufficient and it actually takes away from Christ and the very gospel itself. And that's why this is such a big issue for us as Lutherans and why we need to address it so clearly. And so, yeah, I think, you know, in bringing in there that, you know, how does this relate to satisfactions there? I think that that's the point that we want to make, right? Is that Mm -hmm. there's a difference between good works that flow from faith, which we're all, all on board with, right? Yeah. Whereas the satisfactions is you need to do this in order to make satisfaction for your sins. We're not on board with that language at all. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned it before that maybe repentance is living out in your baptism. 
and another way of looking at it, you know, repentance is agreeing with God. It agrees with God concerning his will and his law and the ways of sin, right? And it allows God's law to strike and bring terror to our conscience every once in a while. But it also agrees with God concerning the promise of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins in the gospel of Jesus that's distributed and given to us regularly in the means of grace. And we really have this full picture of things and this life, this really this life of faith that we have under the gospel summarized in this word, this life of repentance. And I think that's a really comforting and hopeful thing. I think a lot of times when people hear the word repent, they think of maybe something that's oppressive or terrifying or impossible, when really repentance is really just trusting in Jesus. It's trusting in the cross. It's trusting in the resurrection of Christ and saying, that is for me. Jesus did that for me. My sin, that's something I can't stand. It's something I don't like. It's something that brings me pain and sorrow. But Christ brings me joy. He takes that sin away. I think that's an important point to make that also connects with this talk of good works then too, is is that we're trusting Jesus that what he says in his word is really a good way for us to live. We might talk about that in the third function of the law, right? Yeah. That guide, you know. And so we by no means discourage pastors preaching biblical good works. I mean, St. Paul does it all over the place, right? I mean, yeah. just listen to our epistle readings on Sunday and the last several here in Lent, you know, definitely highlight there should be no sexual immorality among you and all of those sorts of things, right? But these are all going to be lived out in faith. Uh, especially because our culture, you know, is okay with all of these things. And so we're going to say it may be a struggle. It may be uncomfortable, but we're going to trust God and know that he has made full satisfaction and he wants what's best for me. And so I'm going to live this in response to that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, you know, when God says, honor your father and mother, that's not a statement that just says, oh, hey, I've been a naughty, bad sinner and I need the forgiveness of sin. God actually desires that we honor our father and our mother, right? And we as Christians should rejoice in that commandment or, you know, same thing with the sixth commandment in terms of marriage and family and adultery and all these other things and keeping the third commandment even, right? Coming to church, making time for God's word. These are things that God desires for us. And this is his will for his Christians to delight in his word. It's his will for his Christians to cry out for him in the day of trouble with the second commandment. It's his will for his creatures to acknowledge him as the only and eternal God. So we have the first commandment, right? And so when we think about that, when you're actually sorrowful over your sin, and to be sorrowful or contrite or terrified and conscience-stricken over your sin means that you don't really desire to do those sins anymore, but you desire within yourself to, once again, you know, bear fruit that Spirit of God is at work within you through his holy word and his means of grace, beginning in your baptism, to work a desire to live a God-pleasing life. And that's a great gift to remember, especially as we fall into sin after our baptism, which we can talk about that later, too. Absolutely. Uh, We're going to go ahead and take a break here. And on the other side of the break, we'll take up kind of the, I'm going to call this the second half of this article 12 here on repentance, which are the various things that we condemn and why we condemn them. And and what you just brought out there is uh, with the things that we condemn, you know, this falling after baptism and things of that nature as well. 
And so uh, we'll pick that up on the other side of the break as we continue taking a look here at Article 12 on repentance from the Augsburg Confession with our guest today, Pastor Jacob Dandy. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. matters as we continue talking with Pastor Jacob Dandy. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California, and we are talking about Article 12 on repentance from the Augsburg Confession here. And uh, just before break, we were setting up our definition of what we're talking about as Lutherans when it comes to what repentance is and seeing the distinction there between the Roman Catholic talk of satisfaction and things like that. Uh, as we get into what I'm calling kind of the second half of this article here, we see that there are various groups and things that we condemn in their teachings on repentance here. And so I think uh, it'd be good to go ahead and get into that. And the first one that we see there as uh, paragraph seven in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord that we're working with here, that our churches condemn the Anabaptists. And then we see that we also condemn those who uh, may argue that some can reach a state of perfection, then the novations are condemned, and several things here. So go ahead and get us into this part of this article here, Pastor Dane. Yeah, so here's a couple of different errors that the Lutherans really want to distinguish themselves against. And they really want to set forth a solid biblical doctrine that everyone should be able to agree with. And they also want to make sure that nobody's going to make a caricature of them and say, oh, you're just like the Anabaptists, or you're just uh, Catholic light, right, or something like that. But they really wanted to have a robust and very clear statement, this is what we believe, right? And so they're, they're going to go ahead and say, hey, we reject the teachings of the Anabaptists who deny that those who have been once justified can lose their salvation. So there's this idea of once saved, always saved, right? And so if you are a Christian, you'll always be there. You'll never fall again. You'll have this continual progress in your justification. And so there's also within that some of the spiritualists, and there's specific people, at least in the Kolb Wanger edition of the Book of Concord, in the footnotes, Kolb references two guys who kind of maybe fall under this category. Uh, one of them is an Anabaptist named Hans Denk. And, you know, I just always get really excited when I'm preparing to be on the radio and get to look into Hans Dank. Uh, I never even thought of referencing him before in my life. But he was an Anabaptist who was saying that justification so isn't so much as important as the discipleship of a Christian. So it's not what God has done for you, but it's, it's what you do for God. And it's that you are saved by active obedience to Christ. And it's just continually live in obedience to him and you will be saved. And those who are truly saved will never fall from that obedience. And so 
in this Jesus isn't the justifier who's the propitiation or the payment for all sins, but he's like this perfect example of how you can be faithful and good, right? And the Lutherans are saying, hey, no, we're not that. But then also there's this guy, Casper Schwinkfeld, and he just got a really cool name, Casper Schwinkfeld. But as we think about that, he believes that believers must show outward evidence of being regenerate. And so maybe sometimes when we accuse people of maybe being pietistic, uh, well, I don't think Schwinkfeld would actually be qualified as a pietist. Um, this is maybe the caricature that we're thinking of, right? Where we're saying, oh, you're fruit trekking. You have to have this outward evidence continually that demonstrates that you are regenerate, that you are a Christian, that you are truly repentant, right? And this actually pops up, I think, maybe in some of our revivalistic culture, right? Where you have to have this bold, outward confession of faith. Or even sometimes where we have people give their testimony, where they'll talk about how terribly sinful they were and how not sinful they are now, right? And they give that as the chief evidence. That's how I can demonstrate to you I'm a Christian. Well, the Lutherans also want to reject that because in both of these cases, the focus is taken off of Christ. It's taken off of being forgiven for the sake of Christ and receiving that forgiveness through faith alone. But it becomes something that is really focused on us, right? It becomes this very subjective thing. We really don't want our forgiveness to be subjective. We don't want it to be focused on us because if it was, it is bound to fail. It's going to rob you of comfort. And so if your description or your theology of repentance is really based on how much you improve after you receive forgiveness or how much you improve after your conversion into the Christian faith, well, you're really basing your hope and your life on something that's like the house built on sand. And we really want to build our house on the rock. Namely, we build it on that cornerstone of the entire confession that we have, and that's Jesus. That's what really makes the Lutheran Confession so important, is that they take all eyes of the Church and say, look at Jesus. It takes every doctrine of the Church and says, the cornerstone of this is Jesus. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus. That is where we build our confidence and our hope. We don't do it in my personal improvement or my progress in my discipleship, or how much I think I'm a better person than I was before I came to faith in Christ. But it's always, I have my faith in Christ alone as the one who takes away my sin. Yeah, as you highlight there, I think what's interesting for me so often when I go through the Book of Concord and so forth is it really boils down to it looks like we have these various things that, you know, we're kind of fighting multi-front wars or something like that, but it really boils down to the same thing as what we're facing with the Roman Catholics, right? With the satisfactions. I mean, yeah. basically these various things all boil down to, is it up to me or is it up to Jesus? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's interesting that they take on different forms, but they're essentially doing the same thing that the Roman Catholics are. Yeah, exactly. You know, and 
I actually have a member in my congregation who went to a reformed college for his undergraduate degree. And he talked about this a lot, like um, reforms may not have the Pope in Rome, but they certainly have their evangelical leaders that they venerate like the Pope. And reformed and evangelicals, they may not have a sacrament of penance where they have to make satisfaction for sin, but man, they certainly do have fruit checking and they do certainly have pietism and all of these other things that exist within their confession and their life that really does serve as a mirror image or almost like a foil to some of the Roman Catholic doctrine, right? And as we live here in Lutherland here, in the land where we confess Holy Scriptura, we confess the Lutheran confessions, and we live as people under the gospel of Christ, we really try to keep it simple. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And when I try to make it about me, that's when I know I'm on shaky ground. And so here, why don't we keep moving? We'll talk about some of the other errors that we want to make sure we don't fall into. And one of the ones that the confessors and the reformers mention here is that of novation. Um, The novations are condemned, it says in paragraph nine here, who would not absolve those who had fallen after baptism. And so here we have the other end of the coin, right? You have those who believe that you kind of need to kind of be progressing and make good works compulsory, and then you really bring it to the extreme with the novations here, where they're saying, hey, yeah, we're so extreme about ensuring that you stick to good works, that we're not even going to forgive you if you fall after baptism. And, you know, uh, by the Catholics, novation is actually considered an anti-pope, and probably rightly so, because his followers believe that if you fell away after being baptized into crass sins like idolatry, you should not be readmitted into the communion of the church. You should be treated as a heathen, a tax collector, or a sinner. Uh, and this, this is in reference to the Decian persecution that happened way back in the early church, where many people renounced the Christian faith due to persecution. I mean, they, they were at the point of a spear. They renounced Christ. They burnt their incense to Caesar. And then they wanted to return. They wanted to come back to the faith. And the novations were saying, no, we can't let you back. You rejected Jesus. You've sinned against the Holy Spirit. You cannot repent from this sin. There is no forgiveness for you. Well, that also, though, robs from the gospel of Christ, right? And we think about examples of people denying Christ. Namely, you know, you think about St. Peter. Well, St. Peter, would he have been readmitted? to the communion of the church after he denied Christ publicly three times. And according to Novation, maybe not, right? And so as we think about that, we also remember that repentance means trust and faith in Jesus, sorrow over sin. And so the church isn't going to deny readmittance to its communion to those who are sorrowful over their sin and confessing Christ as the one who takes away their sin. But we are going to ensure that that forgiveness is given freely, right? And that's really something that they're trying to emphasize, even in the first line of this article. It says, our churches teach that there is forgiveness of sins for those who have fallen after baptism whenever they are converted. And so whenever we become aware of a sin, whenever our conscience burdens us, whenever we have terror over sin, we know we can always return to Christ. 
we know we can always look to Christ in faith as the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so here we have this error of the novation here as well, where we're going to condemn that. Any penitent sinner who comes to Christ, to any penitent sinner who walks through the doors of our churches or walks to our homes or walks back into our lives after being estranged, we should welcome and rejoice. As the Catechism says, and St. Paul says, we should receive them back with joy. Any sin who repents and trusts in Christ gets exactly what Christ promises, and that is the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, I think especially as you highlighted there that, you know, they would call it a sin against the Holy Spirit. Well, that's actually just a misunderstanding of what repentance is. I mean, the sin against the Holy Spirit are those who don't come in repentance. And, you know, I think it's important that they have that line in there, though they return to repentance. I mean, as you say, who of us doesn't fall to idolatry? I mean, anytime we break any of the commandments, we break the first commandment. So we have an idolatry issue there, right? Yeah. And so there would be no hope for anyone if we don't have that striking of the conscience and coming again and saying, I messed up, but I trust that Christ has made full satisfaction for that. And so it's those who don't come in repentance that make the sin against the Holy Spirit. And that's important to highlight here, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. The ultimate fruit of the Spirit would be faith in Christ, right? That you trust in Christ to take away the sins of the world. And so... If you are ever to make a determination that someone is of a different spirit than we are, it's going to be when forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake is denied. It's going to be when forgiveness of sins for the sake of Jesus isn't front and center in their doctrine and their theology and how they practice their faith and practice their piety, and it's focused on something else. And that's really why the Reformers are making this distinction between the Spiritualists and the Anabaptists and the Novatians and, of course, the Roman Catholics, is that they're saying, when these errors and concerning these errors, we are really of a different spirit because Christ isn't front and center and that the forgiveness of sins isn't bountifully and plentifully provided for those who are living in repentance and seeking the forgiveness of sins. And that's really the great focus of that last line, that paragraph 10 there in this article, which we've talked already about the satisfactions commanded by church law and so forth that are condemned there. Obviously, that's in view of the Roman Catholics. And you can certainly say more on that if you want. But I especially want to highlight there that, as you were just saying, you know, the focus of this is faith. And, you know, that's why 10 says our churches also reject those who do not teach that forgiveness of sins comes through faith but command us to merit grace through our satisfaction of sin, right? Again, the order is important and our starting point is important. It all flows forth from faith. That's just the constant refrain of the Lutherans again and again here. Uh, Was there anything that you wanted to say on that point there? Yeah, well, and I think there is this one point there where maybe we have present in some of these views a false view of repentance. And you think about this in terms of like the Roman Catholic system you know, there's that term that the reformers use called ex opere operato, or just by doing the work, they have what's present, they have the forgiveness that they are seeking. And what you mentioned there is true. It all has to flow, and it's necessary that all that we do flows from faith. And so you think about this in terms of a person committing a craft sin, maybe just the one that, that's habitual, which just use drunkenness for an example. So a man goes out and gets terrifyingly drunk, 
creates all kind of havoc, ruins his life, does all sorts of bad things, goes to the priest, confesses to the priest, says, I have sinned, I need forgiveness. And so the priest assigns for him satisfaction. He gets his absolution. He commits and completes his satisfaction, blessed by the priest, goes on. And then what happens? You know, he goes up and parties again and gets drunk again, right? And, you know, sometimes drunkenness may not be the best example just because of the addictive nature of it. And a lot of times people struggle against it. But just for this example, think the man's not struggling with it. He just really likes getting drunk, right? And he really just likes the fun of going out there and doing this. And he knows he has to take care of the condition of his soul. So he's going to go talk to the priest and do the satisfaction. But he doesn't really have faith that's focused on Christ. He's just doing it because, well, he feels like he gets some sort of spiritual benefit from it and that God will take away those sins apart from faith just by, you know, going through the motions and jumping through the right hoop. They can cancel off these debts of sins that they have before God. Well, that's not really a good idea going forth in the life of faith. The life of faith is a life that trusts in Christ. And so, you know, just by going to confession and doing your penance or just by, you know, maybe going into the Reformed and some of the Anabaptists and Radical Reformers, just by saying, hey, look how demonstrably better I am than I was beforehand, that doesn't demonstrate faith, right? That doesn't actually demonstrate that you have or prove that you have forgiveness of sins. And when you put the focus on that, once again, it's misplaced. And so there's this issue of ex opere operato there, where faith must be front and center. And then, of course, there's always the issues that go on with this as well, where as pastorally, we may experience this from time to time, where people want absolution, but there's no contrition, right? People come forth and say, okay, pastor, hey, wipe out this sin for me, but they're not really sorrowful for it, you know, and, and maybe you have the sin du jour of the late 20th and 21st century, you know, you, you have a young man who's cohabitating with his girlfriend or something along those lines. And he says, Pastor, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this. It's not the ideal thing for me. Can you forgive me? And you say, well, you confess that what you're doing is wrong. And they say, well, it's probably not the best thing. It's like, well, do you want to stop living with your girlfriend? It's like, well, hold on there, Pastor. I just told you I was sorry. Well, on the same note there, they want the forgiveness, but there's no contrition or sorrow over the sin, well, the pastor's kind of bound to say, hey, no, what's back up here? Let's actually talk about what contrition is. And so there's always this kind of need to understand that these two parts of confession really are faith in the Word of God. Repentance is faith in God's Word, trusting that the will of God is best and it's good and that I've fallen short of the will and the glory and the work that God has set before me, that I trust that God forgives me and will help me and continues to work within me. But when you take that contrition out, and it's just this idea where I go to the pastor, get the forgiveness so that my conscience is clear so I can keep doing whatever I feel like, that's a problem as well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to make, especially as we're coming out of the article on confession. That this is where, at times, as pastors, we have to exercise that binding key, right? We say, I'm sorry, we cannot offer absolution here because there's not contrition. And so there's some more work to call to repentance there, right? To lead them to repentance and to work that faith 
that will lead them in that. And then the other thing that always happens, and I think you get this a little bit in the apology too, where you start to see, you know, essentially their claim is what I talked about earlier of, well, then you'd never encourage any good works and so forth. And I often say as a pastor, I don't really fear when people are coming in contrition and want forgiveness, they're going to ask, okay, how do I wrestle with this? Right. Yeah. How do, you know, what are some scriptural, what's some scriptural guidance for me here, pastor? Right. And so again, that's distinct from satisfactions. It doesn't do anything to make you more forgiven or anything of that nature. Right. It's just that fruit born of faith. And so we're going to lead them in how they wrestle with this scripturally and, and be strengthened by God's word to live the God-pleasing life and so forth. But uh, we always want to be clear that there's a distinction between the clear forgiveness of Christ and then the fruits that flow forth from that as opposed to being satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. And like I said earlier, those fruits come naturally by faith in God, right? Faith in God's word. The Christian will desire to bear fruit. The Christian will desire to do these things. I don't have to go out to the orange tree in my backyard and beat it with a stick and say, bear fruit already. It's just, it's going to do it. It's an orange tree. And Christians who live in the faith and have the spirit of God and have the word of God will bear fruit in that word. They will bear fruit in that faith because that's what Christians are and that's what Christians will do. And we don't have to gauge that, and a lot of times the fruit that is born is unseen and cannot be measured by man, but what we can do is trust that God is working that within each of us. Of course, as you give that image, which is a great image for us, it makes me think of uh, Jesus when he curses the fig tree, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't do what it's supposed to, uh, even out of season. <laughs> anyway, uh, but... Uh, I do think uh, with about, you know, six minutes here to go or so, it does uh, help bring us to, okay, you know, one of the things that we always face here too is, you know, we talk about these things on a show like Concord Matters or as Lutherans, you know, that this is a part of our Lutheran confession. And you've certainly referenced uh, several scripture passages and it showed up here in the article. Uh, are there other scriptural places that support what it is that we're confessing about repentance here? I mean, sometimes people can basically say, well, that's fine, but how does Scripture talk about this? And our confession is born of Scripture, so uh, give us some of that here as well. Yeah, so um, just uh, maybe some examples of this working out in the Scriptures. You know, first we have Second Samuel chapter twelve, where you can think of like the worst scandal or the worst set of sin that the king of Israel can fall into, apart from you know building temples to Baal throughout the kingdom. You, know, you have this example of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, where David commits adultery, David lies, David has Uriah murdered, all of these things, right? And Nathan, you know, finally calls David out and says, hey, you are the man. And David says, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan do? Does Nathan say, okay, well, here, you're going to have to go through all these hardships. All of these bad things are going to happen to you, and then maybe the Lord will forgive you. Now, Nathan says immediately, and the Lord has put away your sin, right? The Lord doesn't hesitate to forgive those who have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He doesn't wait to see how sincere you are. He says, I've put away your sin. I've removed your sin from you. 
uh, you think about that, and you know, for example, First John one nine: If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a word of promise. God is faithful and just. Do this, right? He will not hesitate to forgive those who come to him with contrite and sincere hearts, trusting that Christ takes away the sins of the world, that those sins are taken away. If they aren't, or if they're somehow bound to my efforts or my work, well, God's not telling the truth then. And that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing to want to confess. God is faithful. God is just. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And maybe another good example of this would be Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. When we look at Luke chapter 19 and we look at Zacchaeus, here we have a guy who absolutely is considered by all to be a sinner and has committed, you know, craft sins. He's a tax collector. He's very wealthy through his tax collecting. But what does he do? He comes and stands before Jesus, right? He's a wee little man, and he climbs up the tree, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down from there. He's looking to Christ as the one who can help him. He's looking to Christ as the one who saves. And what does Jesus do? He acknowledges that and says, today salvation has come to this house since you are a son of Abraham, and for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost, right? You know. Zacchaeus looks to Christ, he confesses Christ as his Lord, he puts his faith in Christ, but also then, with that comes the desire to no longer continue to be that tax collector. He is sorrowful over what he has done, and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore it. Right? Here we have Zacchaeus saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. Now, Jesus doesn't say salvation has come to this house because you're restoring property to people you have stolen from or you have cheated out of their property. No, he's saying salvation has come to this house because I'm the son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And so here we have that really good example. How does God really treat and view sinners? Well, he forgives them, all those who are of a broken spirit, all of those who are of a contrite heart and trust in the gospel, knowing that God is faithful to what he's promised to do. And so this is a very biblical idea that the reformers are fleshing out here, that God does not withhold forgiveness waiting for you to be more sincere, waiting for you to do better or to improve in all that you're doing. No, God simply just forgives sinners. And so those sinners who have faith in Christ have exactly what that faith promises, and that's forgiveness. He doesn't wait on the matter. He gives it. And we can, with all confidence, go to those places where that forgiveness is provided. I like how you've kept the gospel at the front and center of this whole discussion today. That's central to what our Lutheran confession is all about. Again and again, we see that. Uh, With just one minute here, how do you want to wrap us up and set up what comes next? in the Augsburg Confession for us today. Yeah, so what comes next is the use of the sacraments, right? That the sacraments aren't meant to be a term we used earlier here, ex operate operato, but they are meant to be received in faith. And so really repentance drives us to the sacraments in faith, knowing that God forgives sinners in these sacraments. And so that's a really smooth progression from repentance to the sacraments. 
Absolutely, and we'll see some more of that ex opera operato as you talked about earlier there next week as we look at Article 13 on the use of the sacraments. Uh, today, thank you, Pastor Jacob Dandy, for joining us for Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran Confession of Repentance from Article 12 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a pleasure having you join us here today. Oh, it's been a real great thing. Good to join you today. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs> <laughs>